And so I would go and catch those up and I'd be walking through the zoo with a flamingo underneath my arm like a football getting over to the vet clinic and they'd work on the feet and then I'd bring it back and Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Turtles. This is episode eight, and today Tom and I are joined by Will Espenshade of Capodolo Farms, and we have a extensive and informational and wonderful conversation about what's going on at Capodolo Farms and get to know Will a little better. Uh, I've seen Will's name through Facebook and a lot of social media for the past several years, and it was finally nice to get to talk to him and kind of digitally meet him in this space. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it as well. So uh, kick back and enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Ryan, it, it's it's awesome to bring Will to Let's Talk Turtles. I'm super excited. Uh, you know, I took my family, my wife and I took our family to Disneyland just before Christmas and I said, well, let's meet up. I've never been to California more than 24 hours. And so we got together and we spent a day uh, visiting uh, my friend, Kevin, the tortoise guy. And then we went to the Santa Ana Zoo and just hung out all day and talked turtles, talked animals and just had a blast. So, you know, I said, well, what do you think? Would you like to come on? and?" talk with Ryan and I and um, he sounded excited so here we are excited. hey we're doing something right if someone wants to come talk yeah. with us yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought it was a great it's, uh, 420 friendly like a JRE too uh-oh Ryan's looking at me with quizzical eyes I so didn't hear the whole I didn't hear the whole thing I'm sorry I, I said I'm glad you made this 420 friendly oh like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries Just always kidding. friendly yeah um no i'm excited i think i've interacted with you a few times on facebook i love all your posts i like following with capitolo farms i think i said that right uh you know what you offer i think is unique and really beneficial so uh, i'm excited to get to meet you digitally at least and um put a face to the name and, and get to know each other a little bit because i you know the turtle world is it's a pretty awesome close knit world and we should all get to know each other, especially if people are doing good for the, um, you know, for the hobby and, and for keeping turtles in general. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I often question calling it the hobby or, or then the other side of it is how commercialized everything gets. Um, I think of it as a, a keen interest. It's my, um, when, when life spins us off center, um, going and taking care of the animals recenters me, you might say, uh, keeps me non-eccentric, <laughs> as eccentric as being a turtle keeper might be. That makes sense. It does. It does. I, I think you made a great point of um, kind of keeps you grounded and centered. It's my form of yoga is uh, going into the reptile room and just, you know, whether it's misting tortoises, feeding them, getting weights, whatever I'm doing, uh, I definitely feel a lot 
more at ease than I was when I went in. So I, I think that's a great point to make. And I feel that way more with turtles and tortoises than I do with other taxa of reptiles. Weirdly yeah. enough. Oh, fro frogs do a pretty good uh, centering too. They do. They're, there's very tortoise-like in behavior. They just sort of sit there and breathe and look at you. Um, <laughs> aquatic turtles, of course, once they figure out you're the food guy, they'll pace relentlessly at the edge of the tank. But tortoises sort of seem to be a little more patient. I have some red foots, and when I'm preparing all their food, they can see me through the glass front of their enclosure, and they just walk over and look to see what I'm doing. And red foots are usually the last of who I feed because they get the leftover, um, less varied diet, less fruits and vegetables in it um, from feeding out, like say all the leopards and, and Russians and all. Then I'll mix in okra and green beans and things like that for the red foot. So they sit there, they have to be patient because they're getting the tail end of the previous diet um, in one big feeding session. And, so they just watch and they know they could tell right away because I pick up the brown trays that I'm going to put the food on that goes in their enclosure. And there's a, a definite change in um, excitement, I guess, or anticipation, whatever it is that's going on with them. They realize, oh, yeah, he's going to feed us now. And I slide the doors open and put the food in and, and right away they're queuing on where's the tray going to land. I don't put it in the same place every time. And yeah, it's sort of fun. Heck yeah, it's fun. I, I, I swear when they realize food is on the way down, their eyes get wider and they give you that tortoise like stink eye. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like, they know it's coming. They just have a little more charisma. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what I like about them so much more and why I've invested so much more of my time and energy into transitioning away from more snakes and stuff and way more into turtles and tortoises yeah when i was a young teen i had all all but the venomous native snakes in uh the san francisco bay area as captives i'd go out and catch them and keep them for a few months and let them go for, for the fun of it and yeah snakes are um <clears throat> i i like to joke around and say at least arboreal snakes not fall out of a tree all day <laughs> um i guess that's a little snarky and all but um yeah snakes i mean things like cobras and racers and all they're constantly in motion they're constantly checking everything out but most snakes just sit there less animated than a tortoise withdrawn in a shell <laughs> <laughs> um yeah Lizards are a lot of fun, whether they're herbivores or carnivores, they're constantly scoping everything out. Um, it seems like even a sleeping lizard's like a sleeping cat. They're semi-aware of something happening. <laughs> they're funny. I would have more lizards here, but one of the rules we keep in the house is that I can't have uh, crickets or live eater insects in the house. And that, that's fine by me, I guess. Um, but that's otherwise I would definitely be, I love, uh, like little emerald swifts and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I can't, I can't tell you how much I love those little things. And I look at them like, cause they're 25 bucks, you know, from, cause they're all imported from Mexico or Guatemala or wherever. And I know that in 15 years, they're going to be like $10 million and impossible to find. And anyways, they eat crickets. So someone else has to do the heavy lifting. 
<laughs> but uh, so you mentioned uh, growing up, you would catch uh, a lot of the venomous snakes in the San Francisco Bay Area and let them oh, go oh, a little bit. Not non-venomous. Non-venomous. I'm sorry. I, I misheard you. So, yes. So you would catch a lot of the non-venomous stuff, keep them for a little bit, let them go. When was it that you started keeping turtles? What Do you remember a point in time when you're like, you know what? I like these guys a little better. I want to test them out. Well, starting and liking them better are two different points in time. Um, That's true. I first had turtles when I was four or five years old. My dad was um, like the live-in superintendent in an apartment building in San Francisco. And so when apartments turned over, he'd go in and make sure all the faucets didn't leak and things like that. And then he would fix things along the way as well. And some students from uh, City College in San Francisco had red-eared sliders and um, um, reef turtles in one of those little kidney bean-shaped pools. Um, and they they gave them to me. Um, I don't know how long they were in our house when they died. My mom disappeared the whole thing and distracted me with something else, I guess. But the the memory of them is there. And then uh, later on in my in my um, I don't know, like eight, nine, or ten, when I started catching all these things that included Western pond turtles. And I, I like the pond turtles the best of everything I caught and would let go. And at the time, my aunt and uncle had a pet shop in San Jose. So I worked for them for a summer. And my aunt paid me in turtles and tortoises, so to speak. And so I had a, a bunch of animals in my room. I, had a, I actually bought um, a factory reject fiberglass bathtub um sort of two person size bigger than standard but still not like a huge spa like thing and my grandpa helped me set that up in my bedroom with a, a filter and a, a ramp and a land area and all and i had a turtle soup there uh, any aquatic turtle ended up in there um, stink pots and western pond turtles uh, malayan leaf turtles some pelusias um, and at that time, I became a member of the Bay Area Turtle and Tortoise Society. And so there was always um, surplus or rescue or whatever you call it. Anyways, animals available at every meeting. And once the bathtub was full, I started figuring out how to have uh, tortoises because water management wasn't a deal with tortoises like it is with aquatics. So I, I started having tortoises. I think the first tortoise I had was a um, California desert tortoise and it lived in our backyard. And then I had a leopard tortoise and a few others. Um, then a little later, like, um, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, um, I, I dispersed all those animals, a lot of them to people in the California Turtle and Tortoise Club. And the Western Pond Turtles, I'll let go in the local university pond. And um, went, <clears throat> went to school. My, my parents always sort of discounted the whole interest in reptiles as a phase I'll grow out of. But my grandfather and aunt fed my interest with talking about it with me and making it seem like it wasn't so abstract and fringe a thing. Um, 
And of course, my aunt and uncle they had a pet shop. So for my aunt to talk in those terms was, you might say, natural to her. When she was a little girl in the 50s, she bred uh, uh, anoles or, you know, the American chameleons and had some kind of relationship with someone at Cal Academy of Sciences because of that. Um, so my grandpa would always take me to the aquarium or Cal Academy of Sciences. Um, it was more cellular at the time, so Steinhardt Aquarium was a, a piece of the California Academy of Sciences. I don't know how it's structured now, but at the time it seemed like there were a bunch of different science interests all held under one roof. So my focus was Steinhardt Aquarium. And we'd go out to the zoo, but it was always my, my grandfather pretty much taking any of these places or making the event memorable. And then, um, so after that uh, disbursement of animals from um, mid-teens and all, I went to Fresno State to try and make something of my education to that point. Um, I initially was going for a zoology degree, but I uh, was sort of pushed or guided into going into chemistry because the counselor at, at Sonoma State, where I was going to college, was, uh, um, I think he felt I would be better suited for chemistry somehow over zoology. And he said, well, you'll make a lot more money as a chemist. And I suppose that's true on the broad scale of things, but a really successful biologist can make as much or more than a chemist. I mean, we've got Craig Vetter as an example of that. Um, although that would have been extreme foresight <laughs> from when I was a teenager and my parents and everyone influencing me. So anyways, I went to Fresno State to make some use of all that chemistry I took and uh, got a degree in viticulture and enology, which is grape growing and winemaking and worked in, uh, a commercial poultry farm for a while. But I found that pretty dissatisfying because you're growing animals. The whole thing about commercial production agriculture is the feed conversion ratio. How much food for how much pounds of meat you can sell. So it's very um, formulaic, I guess. And, and not much fun. There's not, not, you might say, an art to it. And I, at the time, started volunteering at the Fresno Chaffee Zoo. Then Sean McEwen was the curator. I don't know, Ryan, if you've heard of him, but anyways, he, he had a lot of firsts there. Um, he won Bean Awards. I imagine you know what a Bean Award is. Okay. Yeah, I do. It's, for those who don't know, it's a reproduction-based award for uh, a lot of zoos and aquariums. I don't know if they still give those out. Um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know to date, but yeah, it's for like advancement or making headway in a, in a breeding project and breeding world firsts or something that's difficult. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, good, good editorial comment there. Um, so it, it was great being mentored by Sean. Like a lot of people in reptiles, he has what I think a lot of people would consider an exotic personality, but for whatever reason, he and I clicked really well. We would go on field trips together on weekends to go to different places and find animals or, or see or meet people that were significant herpetologists in California at the time. 
like Terry Lilly and Lloyd Lemke and um, the Greens. They had a huge turtle collection down in Ojai. Um, so we, we did a lot of that kind of thing together. And then uh, I was actually employed at the Fresno Zoo, but um, four years as a volunteer and then a year as a, a temporary, which is like if someone leaves, they fill the spot right away, but you're not a, considered a regular employee, you're considered a temporary employee. And then that times out at about a year and then they hire someone. Well, they, I went through that whole temp thing and then they hired me. And then like two months later, they fired me um, for, for no reason. No reasons required in California. It's at will employment. I, I have always thought that's because the director wanted to hire someone that didn't rank as high in the ranking to be hired. And the system there is everyone's given a score after taking a written test and a verbal interview. And the verbal interview is conducted by curators or directors of three other zoos. So the Fresno Chaffee Zoo director doesn't have any say. They have to pick the highest scoring person. And uh, the score is generated by a, a written test and the, the interview score of three other people. And uh, I scored highest by quite a bit. So I, I think what they did is they just waited till um, candidate two, three, four, and five dropped out because they really wanted candidate six. And when, once that was uh, the next apparent person in the ranking, boom, I was kicked out. Um, That's unfortunate. Well, well. When, what did you, uh, if you don't mind, can I ask, what were you, um, uh, what was charged under your care while you were in Fresno for the time? Well, as, as a volunteer, I worked everything. Um, yeah. The whole zoo, uh, they had sea lions and elephants. Um, I, I found of all the zoo animals, carnivores or whatever, venomous snakes, the, the one animal that actually gave me pause for concern and I really didn't want to work them is elephants. Elephants are really smart and cagey and they can pretend you're your best friend for a long time and then just one day something clicks or they've not liked you all along or they've held their time, I'm not sure, but um, when I've gone to zookeeper conventions, I noticed most elephant keepers are sort of like uh, Chuck Norris kind of shaped people, um, not, not monstrous in size, but really tight and wiry and, and seemingly is unpredictable. Like at any moment, they could like whack you or something or say something nice. So I think that's the better personality for an elephant keeper based on that. Not so scientific survey. You know, I actually um, kind of share that little bit of uh, worry about elephants with you because when I was an intern at the Cincinnati Zoo way back in 2001, there used to be a saying, I don't think it applies anymore, but the saying was, elephant keepers never retire. <laughs> okay. And so just due to the uncertainty uh, and unpredictability of elephants in past and historically, I don't think that's true now, but um, that was a saying. So, and I think there's credence to that. The the lead elephant keeper when I was at the Fresno Chaffee Zoo was a guy, Paul, and he was, had that physique. He was very mellow, easygoing guy. And um, I think, I think the elephants loved him. Um, they, they were very affectionate to him and 
if they felt anything was a, endangering him, they would stand between him and whatever that was. Like if there was a bobcat in the enclosure moving dirt around and he was out there to manage the elephants because maybe one of them wouldn't go in the holding or all, the elephant would always stand between him and the bobcat. Um, so he got on with him great. It just never felt like I was going to have that rapport. So what I, what I spent most of my time doing as a volunteer was um, working on the reptile house. But the year that I was hired as a, a temp, I mostly worked the bird section. Um, I really like birds a lot. Uh, they can be a lot of fun. They quickly sort out who gives them food from people taking pictures or whatever. And at the time I wore overalls a lot. So I stood out a little differently in how I dressed as well. They would recognize me from across the zoo if they could make an eye line through all the trees and all. Oh, there he is. And they were all paying attention to what I would do. So then once I was hired as a regular keeper, I was assigned to a bird section. Our, um, we didn't have a bird curator, but the veterinarian at the time was sort of the default bird curator because that was her primary interest. And she was great to work with. I really enjoyed it. Um, she was also very uh, mentoring in how to do things. So the, the flock of flamingos that were there, they hadn't bred in 20 years. Um, they're pretty old and with some manipulations of the enclosure that she guided me to do, we got them to reproduce. It was a small flock, like 19 birds. So that was, that was sort of a big deal. That's pretty cool. Got, got hammer cops and crown cranes and taracos and different hornbills and all, all the breed. Some not so successful because there was no facility for artificial egg incubation and hand rearing. So either the birds brought the animal up to fledging and independence or they didn't um even there were these little birds um some kind of crake they look like little mini mini miniature ostriches i mean even smaller in a kiwi they'd run around and hide in shrubbery and all but they were a lot of fun um we bred those but every time the fledgling got big enough to run around on its own a hornbill would eat it so <laughs> sort of oh hornbills yeah they're a lot of fun did I, I hear you said you bred hammer cops yeah yeah they build a, a a giant giant structure in something fortunately they built it on some metal support for the aviary itself so it could hold it um they laid eggs i I'm not recalling if they fledged or not, but none survived to adulthood. Um, we bred a whole bunch of cattle egrets, but I guess that's no big deal. Um, and the crown cranes were sort of cool. Um, parent crown cranes are super protect protective. Um, the hornbills, which were in the same flight aviary, had no chance trying to get a baby crown crane. The parents were way too attentive. Um, so those, those matured. Um, the flamingos were on their own open uh, area that they went in a cage. So there were no flying birds there. And even though we'd get seagulls and all in the Central Valley, the, all, the, all the flamingos did well. They're sort of fun. They're goofy birds. Um, some would have this uh, 
malady called bumblefeet, where there's a thick callus buildup in the feet. And so I would go and catch those up and I'd be walking through the zoo with a flamingo underneath my arm like a football, getting over to the vet clinic and they'd work on the feet and then I'd bring it back. And it was always funny. Little kids would always spot that you're carrying an animal. Adults would just sort of look right past you like, oh, there's just a zookeeper walking by. But little kids always notice you had something in your arms. So that was fun. Yeah. Ever observant. Yeah. Those little kids. So, man, I feel like I just grew up a lot with you right there. That's comprehensive so far. Um, well, then I uh, ended up after being uh, thrown away from the Fresno Chaffee Zoo. Sean helped me get uh, an open door to a few other zoos. And I landed at the Philadelphia Zoo where Kevin Wright was the curator. Another person that people would accuse of having a very exotic personality. Um, Maybe he sort of like that end of that scale. Um, anyways, uh, he is really, really bright guy. Um, knew the Latin names of virtually all reptiles and amphibians. He was able to like just jam all that into his head. And um, really interesting uh, person to have as a curator too, because he's a veterinarian. And he would look at everything in terms of um, optimal care for health. And so sometimes he, he got into disagreements with that genuine um, staff veterinarians, but it always seemed to be resolved. We did uh, original research work on cryptosporidia and how to resolve that if it's in an enclosure and different kinds of treatments for it. We had a big collection of uh, Sicilians, um, which are those worm-like amphibians that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and, and Kevin was really interested in amphibian medicine. He published a book with, um, forget the first name, last name Whitaker, I think. Yep. Anyways, he published a book on, on amphibian medicine and a lot of that um, was done while he was at the zoo. So a lot of times he, walk out into the kitchen and we're all taking a break and say, gee, I just read this paper and, you know, give us like a, a few minute synopsis of what he read and things like that. Um, so at the, at the Philly Zoo, I was exclusively in the reptile house. It's a different um, workplace environment. It was union and we were all um, slotted into one kind of keeping or another. So bird keepers, and hoofstock keepers and primate and all that were, were very um, cellular. We were all kept, not kept away from each other, but we, it's not like if you were done early in the reptile house, you could go over and help someone in hoofstock that wasn't okay. Because now you're crossing some kind of line in terms of your designation as a keeper. Although on holidays, when it was just to do everything you can to get out of here, because the zoo's not open, Everyone welcomed help from keepers from other oh, parts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so that worked out good. That was a lot of fun. Um, so I, I ended up having a lot of the turtles and tortoises, not all of them, at the Philly Zoo. And, and that was fun. I really enjoyed that. I became a stud bookkeeper for pig-nosed turtles. I awesome. wanted to do uh, pancakes, but Rusty Grimpy at the Oklahoma Zoo already had them. So... Um, 
no other tourists seemed apparent. So when I was asked, well, what do you want to do then? And I said, well, it makes sense to do a turtle that's not bred in captivity, you know, just set it all up. Because at the time I went through the zoo biology course and then stud bookkeeping and um, population management planning. And it seemed like a lot of people were doing a lot of work to fix um, early attempts at stud books to get them all sorted out, like the whole thing with orangutans being two, two distinct populations that should have been kept genetically isolated in captivity weren't. And so people were trying to sort that kind of thing out and whether red wolves were distinct enough to keep them separate from other uh, groups of wolves. And so there's a lot of all that kind of troubleshooting going on. And so with all that in mind, I, I said, well, maybe I should do an animal that's not been bred in captivity yet and just organize it. So when it does breed, it just, everything falls into place. So I did pig nose turtles and, um, at the time, there were only four of them in North America that had been legally imported, which upset a lot of registrars and zookeeper curators um, <laughs> and all, but it's a public domain document. And, and they were all, oh, that's proprietary information. I go, oh, no, it's not. It's a public domain document. Um, so I, I guess I stepped on a few toes with all that, but <clears throat> it worked out okay. And then subsequently, they bred at the Bronx Zoo. Um, someone, someone, uh, suggested, oh, someone just dropped babies in the giant pool. And I thought, well, I don't know that anyone would be dropping, you know, really expensive animals in a giant pool just to punk the Bronx Zoo, thinking they had bred them when they didn't. Um, and they, the, the keeper there, uh, Bill Holstrom, he was able to find, uh, eggshells and unhatched eggs or whatever to demonstrate they had actually bred there. And um, yeah, so that was fun. It maybe was helpful to do that stud book, who knows? That's so neat. I may have seen some of those turtles. I worked at the Bronx Zoo for a few years. I oh. met Bill as he, re he retired right before I started, but I met him a few times. He's a really nice guy. But I know that exhibit where they put those Fly River turtles in. So, and I may have met some of those that were bred and, and raised up. So it's, it's interesting that we're connected in that way. Very cool. I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. Yeah. So were the was that sort of a happy accident then, Will? I I I mean, well, they they everything was there to work if the turtles decided they wanted to sure. produce. And so the turtles did. I mean, how how many times have people set everything up perfect and they never bred, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know that accident is there, probably just a happy success. Um that but wasn't the, guaranteed. The zoo did not incubate the eggs. Were they ground hatched? They, they, they hatched in the enclosure. Cool. It's a it's a fairly massive exhibit uh, for them. Now I don't know if they I don't think they still have those in there, but they have Indian gharial in that exhibit now. It's in a place called Jungle World. Yeah, they did at the time too. Oh, they, then I missed them when I was there. We didn't have any, and right after I left, Don Boyer got a whole bunch of new ones in and. Oh, so I never got a chance to work with Garyl, but yeah, it's a huge exhibit for those guys. When I was there, it was basically a bunch of garami, like giant garami fish, and um, and Coretacales just in there. They we didn't breed them when I was there, but I could see how that would be conducive to giving them the option to breed if they felt like they could do it. 
Yeah. I keep thinking that might happen at the San Diego Zoo as well. They have um, pig nose in a, it's, it's huge. I mean, it'd be a huge pool if it was in someone's backyard, let alone a zoo exhibit. Um, a lot of water depth and underwater sand pits with a giant Pelikelly soft shells and a big beach and all. But I think the Kellys or Pignos, they need the eggs to submerge to initiate the break and diapause and hatch and come forward. So I don't know if they have a flooding beach at San Diego or how they might manage that, but it seems likely they could get them there too. Across my fingers, it's definitely a species I think would be beneficial to see more captive rearing and hatching. Yeah, I think Wayne Hill has a big setup for him too. One of his keepers, uh, Joel, posts pictures a lot on Facebook of different setups they have, and they have a lot of turtles that most people don't keep because of their size or sort of onerous keeping requirements. So, anyways, blah blah blah. Um, history. Then I, when I was at the Philly Zoo, I got fired from there too. Um, I tend to step on toes, I guess, or manage from the bottom up. There's a couple of ways you could look at that. And, and um, I had already started going to Villanova to get a graduate degree in biology. And then I ended up in the biopharmaceutical industry because there the egos are completely different than at a zoo. And so a senior scientist has a PhD and just doesn't even care that you exist. So you can possibly say something to offend them because their ego is so big. <laughs> and they're in the room, nothing else fits, right? So, you know, that that's sort of as much a compliment as it is a sort of a, a scathing comment because they're <laughs> doing a lot of interesting, hard to figure out stuff. Um, but there, my interest in zoo animals and all didn't affect me, and it certainly pays better than being a zookeeper. Um, and Pretty much any profession does. Well, <laughs> many of them do. Yeah, it's it's not as um, well. It, it's when I moved to San Diego and try to get a job in biopharma, I noticed the pay was significantly less. And I talked with a woman at a recruiting uh, company and she said, well, it's what they call the sunshine tax because so many students go through San Diego State or UC San Diego and they love living here so much, they'll take a, a lower wage just to stay here. So zoos have that across. So many people will volunteer and work for free at a zoo that it, it drives the cost that is mm -hmm. willing to pay a keeper down. Um, so we need a lot more um, zoo fatalities to change that. And <laughs> um, it, it's, it's something that too many people will throw themselves at for free to, to mm -hmm. make it a, a good job in terms of pay if that's your driver. Um, so anyhow, I got the graduate degree at, at Villanova. Um, that was an interesting place. Aaron Bauer is there and he runs the graduate program for biology students. And if you're into geckos and you don't know who Aaron Bauer is and you're not really into geckos, um, he's published more on geckos than anybody else at this point. And I would imagine, um, I, I forget the name, um, 
<clears throat> is at a Midwest university anyways. At, at, at one point, he was the most published uh, herpetologist in the world, followed closely by Edward Taylor, the guy that did all the work on Sicilians. Um, I think Taylor still probably might have a record on the most new species defined or designated because, well, Sicilians, and he was the first guy that really dove into them. Um, but anyways, Bowery probably surpassed both those records at this point. He's described numerous geckos and published hundreds and hundreds of articles. His resume is like a New York City phone book back when there were phone books. Um, I mean, one time he was introduced for a uh, uh, lecture by a professor at the university and the, um, I don't know, his, his workplace superior walked in and said, well, I don't think Aaron needs a lot of introduction. He threw down a stack of phone books and said, here's his resume um, <laughs> as a joke. And I think he's, he's, uh, I forget what they call that, but Someone donated a lot of money to the school to make sure that he's an endowed chair of the department or something. Um, anyways, he's a really great guy too to actually take coursework from um, and to have you um, be mentored by him and how to work your way through the, the graduate school system, um, which seems to be daunting everywhere. Um, so, that was a lot of fun. And in school, every, every class, right, any kind of option, I drilled down on, well, what's the tortoise version of this? <laughs> so if it was a seminar class or general biology or even immunology or history of a disease and organism, no matter what class I took, there was always, I did the tortoise angle to such an extent that some teachers, right at like the first day of class, they'd pull me inside and say, you can't do a tortoise paper in this class. So, cause they wanted me to do something different. Um, so that was sort of fun. So I, I finished that at Villanova. And so Tom asked me something somewhere in my talking with him. So how did you come to designate yourself as a tortoise biologist? It says that on my Facebook or on my webpage or something. And I said, well, you can sort of call yourself anything you want. So that's what I decided to call myself. <laughs> um, it's not like a credentialed title. Um, but I, I do have a, a master's degree. And so not as significant in academic sense as a doctorate, but certainly a lot more significant than a bachelor's. And I thought, huh, what do I got to call myself? I really don't like that when people put trailing letters on their name, like, you know, that becomes part of their identity. I know it's a lot of work to get a degree and people are proud of that. And I guess in some professions, it's, it's required that you designate yourself as MD or uh, an attorney or whatever. But um, I thought tortoise biologist was good. And if I just put TB, everyone would say, well, what's TB? <laughs> so tortoise biologist. <laughs> So you, so after Philadelphia Zoo, you went to Villanova, you got your master's and you've been in, um, biopharmaceuticals kind of since. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. All right. And um, what parallels have you drawn from your work, if any, uh, in biopharmaceutical to tortoise keeping, or is it just, uh, your, your job helps feed your, your passion, your hobby? Um, 
parallels? Well, in biopharma, I mean, basically you have healthy animals and you do something to perturb their health and then see if you can resolve that with whatever compound or surgery or device you come up with. Um, and in, in tortoises, you, you're never looking for that endpoint. <laughs> um, and I, I did, a, we had a barrier, which means everything going in and out is autoclaved or sanitized somewhere. So at one of the places I worked, we had a barrier where for 10 years, no actual animals were brought in. Um, so sperm or eggs might be brought in. Everything that goes in there is showered or autoclaved or whatever. So the parallel there is um, the, the uh, ethic of cleanliness and biosecurity. Um, and I mean, we, we would breed strains of mice that would, you know, not do well if the, if the light cycle were changed on them. So whatever the light cycle was when they came out of the womb and grew up and was fine, but you changed that. So they were super photo period sensitive. So it just brought into my awareness how all these things can influence how animal works. Something I've noticed is that tortoises are incredibly plastic and adaptable to all kinds of weirdness like that temperature and humidity and, and light. Um, but just because they're adaptable to it doesn't mean you should necessarily challenge that. <laughs> um, so all, all the lights I have are on timers. I have two sets of timers. Um, so there's like a 14 hour photo period for everybody, but it's sort of like, you might say background illumination. And then there's a six hour intense photo period where more heat lights or, or the UV turns on and the whole enclosure becomes much brighter. So when it's the background illumination of the tourist wants, it can easily hide from the brightness of the light. And even all the lights you have in an enclosure, it's still nothing like being out in the sun on a sunny day. But nonetheless, they have a choice and, and they, they work it. Um, so I guess that's the parallels is you just learn the sensitivity of animals and things that can affect them in a, in a more practical sense. I mean, if you change the photo period on tortoises from 12 to 14 hours or the other way, you might not notice a lot of change, but when you do it with mice where it actually kills them, then, oh, well, yeah, photo period is really important. And so I guess they're, they're, that would be the parallel. I mean, you could extrapolate that tortoises as well, though. I mean, uh, the fact that the photo period could have such an impact on a living organism, I'm sure it has some sort of impact, but I love that you can find that kind of um, you know, par parallel in something like biopharmaceuticals excuse me, as I'm tongue-tying myself with biopharmaceuticals into tortoise care. Um, one of the things I love that you said is, um, you know, calling tortoises adaptable. Some of tortoises are very adaptable. And I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, we're lucky that some of these animals are very adaptable. And I always counter with that. No, I think they are lucky because just <laughs> because they're adaptable, doesn't mean, you know, they can handle us messing up horribly. It's not necessarily what's great for the animal, but they're lucky that they are so adaptable. Um, and that's typically what ends up being like people's first pets. A lot of times is the very adaptable ones. Um, anyways, I like that point. I wanted to point, point that out that, uh, you know, some animals are lucky they can handle what we do. 
Um, so what was it that when you decided to start keeping more tortoises at home, was there a specific species or something that caught your eye and you were like, I have to have some of these. I need to bring some of these into my life. Yeah. Um, so tortoises in general, due to something you brought up earlier, um, it's it's optimal if you can grow all their food in your backyard. But um, even when uh, romaine is $70 a case, you can still go get a case of romaine. Um, when When crickets are shut down because, I don't know, some disease went through the breeding facility or whatever, you're, you're really out of luck if you really need crickets. And um, I didn't want to spend time raising animals that I then in turn feed to the animals I want to raise. So uh, herbivores were the rule there and not managing a lot of water. Um, like a water tray is a lot easier to manage than multi-hundred gallon aquariums. Um, so those two factors went into it. Um, and as far as species go, when I, I've almost never not had at least a box turtle or something. Um, so when I thought about species again, I thought, well, I, I'll stay with like a few small species like pancakes and, and uh, I thought Egyptians and Kinexis natalensis. And I know Tom just had a heartbeat over that. <laughs> and um, uh, some of the pyxis and uh, so smaller species like that. And so it's relatively easy to get Egyptian tortoises and pancakes. Uh, took a little, little more effort and being a pain in everyone's ass getting the, the planicata, but I, I have quite a few now. And um, then I've never, gotten the, the Conixis uh, natalensis. I mean, I figured out some ways to, you might say, game the system and end up with some, but I, I don't want to be on anyone's radar, you might say. So no point in going there. And, and uh, yeah. So then when I moved to San Diego, um, back from the East Coast, getting back out to California, I met a couple people in the area that were into animals and the, and the first, I might say, really great opportunity was to get a, a big cohort of um, porcelain tortoises. Now they're sort of a lot bigger than say a pancake or an Egyptian, but I house them all individually and um, grown them up and, and they're pretty robust species. They're pretty darn tough um, once established. And then um, I got some radiateds and redfoots and, and uh, I have some anoria from when I lived in Fresno going back to 1990, I had some anoria and I left them with a, a friend in Fresno when I moved back to San Diego. Slowly that group has ended up with me down here in, in the San Diego area. So they're pretty darn big. Um, certainly not a indoor tortoise unless you have some kind of crazy big basement set up or something. So they're outdoors here. And then, um, I don't know, I have a lot of different species now. Sometimes people say, how many tortoises do you have and what species? And I say, yeah, I don't really think about it. Um, when I go out there and take care of them, I look in the enclosure, there's the tortoise looking back at me. I know what it's supposed to eat clean the water, if there's eggs, put them in the incubator and go from there. Um, and then in, in 2019, there was a, 
uh, a pretty big, weird um, focus reshifting. Uh, a fellow gave me some Galapagos tortoises, and that's a that's a whole different commitment. Um, it, it's it's a big different commitment. Um, I've been struggling for a couple of years trying to buy property down here, struggling because um, I've come to find that one profession that people ought to have a stronger distaste for than attorneys is realtors. Um, <laughs> I met a few realtors that are, are actual, genuine, hardcore class act good people, but most are, are people that sort of figured I guess, gee, I just take this test and I can make $10,000 a month. And I, I don't know what the attraction is. One realtor I, I know pretty well referred to a lot of women realtors as bottle girls. It took me a long time to figure out what that was. But, you know, like at a high-end restaurant where there's a woman that carries out a bottle of expensive champagne to your table and opens it for you, that's a bottle girl. Well, after they get tired of opening bottles of champagne, they become realtors. That's a really sort of scathing description, but I can see it. I met realtors that when they come to show a house, they're wearing a tiara. I mean, who, who, oh, almost oh. said a bad word on the yeah. podcast, <laughs> but a... like, who the frack wears a tiara to work, you know? Um, so, I mean, like Princess Di, right? That makes sense. She's a, it's a red flag. <laughs> yeah, red flag. There you go. Um, so, anyways, um, there's a, a lot of, uh, I mean, I've had rental real estate for a long time. So I figured, oh, this shouldn't be so big a deal to buy a farm, but farmland is a whole different ball game than like a fourplex or a single family home to buy as a rental. A lot of realtors are not prepared to deal with the eccentric desires of buying a piece of land to make a tourist farm. And also getting back to Capitola Farms, I wanna, I wanna produce or grow a lot of the things I sell. I only produce a couple things and I have to be pretty careful about how they're marketed because of all the rules of producing animal foods, um, laws or regulations. Um, so I figured out how to stay well inside the legal route, um, but for me to actually grow and dry and sell something. It needs to be a dedicated facility. It can't be something literally out of my backyard. So I've been looking for a piece of land big enough to do that. Um, the, the driver with Capital of Farms is, is quality in terms of safety, not pesticide. That's why everything is repackaged organics with a few exceptions. Um, a lot of times, you see it on Facebook and listeners, people will post a picture of a cucumber and say, is this safe? And, and that, that, that's, I, I, I genuinely sort of don't know what the person's driving at. Do they mean, is it safe nutritionally? Do they mean if it's conventional grown and not organic, is it safe? Um, and a lot of people say, oh, they're not safe. And no one ever defined what safe means. I mean, a cucumber is a perfectly good thing to feed a tourist. It's just, is it organic or not? And um, how much of the diet is the cucumber? And you take those two things into account and yeah, cucumbers are perfectly safe, um, but it can't be 80% of the diet and conventional grown. 
as cucumbers usually have a high percentage of pesticide residue on them. So does kale and strawberries. There's a couple things that are high on the list of residue. So there, there's that. So th this, this is sort of where I'm at now with the glops and all the other animals. I have, I have a lot of animals that are all single housed because um, I don't have an enclosure large enough to let males and females interact such that the males aren't going to stress the hell out of the female. Um, so there's all, I call it a dance card. I'll introduce them together for a couple hours and hmm. listen to a blog or thumb through Facebook while they're encountering each other and then separate them again. My tourist partner that lives up in Clovis, California, she has large outdoor enclosures, so that works well. So there's a bunch of animals up there as well. Um, as for most of the reproduction of animals occurs where I end up selling babies at trade shows. Um, but I, I bred redfoots here because redfoots are pretty mellow. Uh, male redfoots don't tend to be um, destructive rapists. They're pretty gentle and mellow with female redfoots. And um, female redfoots seem to effectively be able to say no, not now, and the male abides by it. Um, pancakes are that way too, they're pretty mellow. Um, so I bred quite a few of those here in, in San Diego. I bred the Minoria a couple of times, but they're the only ones I have outside. Um, Southern California, everybody plants palm trees because they're cool looking but palm trees create palm fruit. And so Southern California as a whole, anywhere that there's irrigated backyards, there is a lot of rats. Uh, mm. I mean, a lot of rats because they eat the palm fruit. And I've had rats break into my garage where a lot of animals are and eat baby tortoises. That's, that's really horrifying to come across. No, oh my so gosh. Better rat proofed my garage. I mean, I didn't really rat proof it in the first place. It never occurred to me, but once that happened, I went through and um, fill, fill all these little voids that you would think, oh, nothing could get through there. But if you measure it and then look on Google, how, how small opening can a rat get through? You go, oh, my God, a rat could get through there. So fill it full of chicken wire and they don't get through that so well. So, yeah, I'm sort of rambling now. I forget where we were. You asked what, what focus of animals am I on? tortoises um it's not that many species <laughs> no i learned a long time ago i never ask anybody how many tortoises they have that's that's none of my business all right so <laughs> it's, it's like asking someone how many horses do they own you, you don't ask that question so. it's taboo but so, well cap for those that don't know about capodolo farms what is it describe that business for our listeners well i i buy in bulk like multiple hundred pounds at a time organic produced uh leaves and flowers and and now grasses and they're prepared mostly for people that that bag tea so there's tbc tea bag cut and um cut and sifted which is a slightly larger particle size and then from one generator to another, um, cut and sifted might be a completely different particle size. But anyways, it's, it's mostly things produced for people who consume organic tea. 
So like chamomile is super well known and I have organic chamomile, but instead of putting it in tea bags, I put it in little plastic Ziploc bags and sell it as tortoise food. So aside from the chicken layer crumbles that I sell on the Zoomed diets, um, and then the, the two items that are called backyard harvest, everything's organic and it's produced for human consumption. And I repackage it from mega bulk, like multi hundred pound shipments into, into smaller amounts. I keep everything separate <clears throat> because I think you can always blend them together once you receive a package of a variety pack. Like let's say it's called all aminos. So it will have uh, moringa and mulberry, red clover, alfalfa, and dandelion. Cause each of those things have all the essential amino acids, at least as rated for humans. And you can mix them all together if you want, or I think it's better to just use one at a time to keep the tortoise habituated to every day might be a little different. And so how it started was I was feeding cactus to the pancake tortoises. And sometimes they would preferentially eat what dried out on the feeding tile over the brand new fresh I put in. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started drawing cactus on purpose and feeding it to the tortoises. And I noticed they'd eat it perfectly fine. So the first thing I produced was the cactus chips. Now, as before, I was uh, in tune with all the laws and regulations of producing uh, animal food in California, which is highly regulated. Um, and then I was talking with other people, and I I'm a, used to be a much more active participant on TFO or the Tortoise Forum. And people there are always asking, is this edible? Is that edible? And uh, one thing that came up was Moringa. And I, I did a lot of reading on Moringa. The World Health Organization suggests that if um, you're somewhere where there's food poverty, if you could only plant and grow one thing, plant and grow Moringa, because the leaves, the stems, the bark, the seed pods, the roots, everything is edible on a Moringa tree. It has all the essential amino acids as a high calcium phosphorus ratio, which is also important to people. Um, has uh, omega fatty acids, um, a lot of vitamins and minerals. I mean, if, if you, I suppose if you could only eat two things ever, sweet potatoes and moringa would be, you could grow perfectly good on those two things and not be for want of any nutrient. Um, so I got some organic moringa and I bought it from a company that grinds it up and sells it as a powder and vacuum freeze packs or freeze dried packet in these aluminum uh, or mylar bags for like a 20 year life. So I bought 100 pounds from them and I sorted through it and I see why they sell it as a powder because when I was sorting through all the bulk leaves, I'm finding like little bits of granite and pieces of that plastic burlap. So I hand sorted through like 100 pounds of Moringa to get all that stuff out. I thought there's gotta be better sources for all this stuff. So as time went on, I, I found better sources and, and um, a wider variety. And recently I added uh, organic uh, dried greens that are oat, barley, and wheat. So it's not like the straw or the hay, it's actually the green, 
They're harvested as green and dried so it stays green. And I asked the mill if they would make a bigger particle size. So the biggest particle size that they'll make, which they, they don't do normally, I guess they might do it for other vendors, is um, an 80 screen, I think it is. Maybe I got it backwards now. Anyways, the biggest screen they'll use, the particles come out two millimeters or about a 16th of an inch. So I, I got that and it's all organic. And, and um, a lot of people debate on the utility of organic and, and that, that could be a, a whole podcast on its own, but on average, organic foods are, are less bad than non-organic. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't people that cheat or there isn't drift from an adjacent field, but there are a lot of rules to being an organic grower that minimize a lot of that, if not completely eliminate it. So, so I sort of have two goals now is to get more US origin, USDA organic certified, as opposed to coming from um, South Africa or Bulgaria or something like that. And <clears throat> um, to maybe try and grow my own. Like I sell a lot of nettle, that's super popular. And, and as I'm weighing it out, every once in a while, I'll see a foxtail in there. Well, I pick them out every time I see them, but I'm sure I miss some. And to me, that's that's shouldn't be there. So if, if I were growing them, I'd use uh, vertical aeroponics and there'd be no weeds in the greenhouse. So there'd be no foxtails. Um, so always try to get better quality. I noticed one time I'll get a hundred pounds of red clover uh, herb, and there's a lot of little bits of flower mixed in there. And the, the dried leaf is bright green and other times I'll get it. And it is sort of, is a little more stemmy and it's dried, like it was harvested maybe dead because it's brown. And if you dry a green plant when it's still green, a green leaf, it'll stay green. Um, so if you dry it, too high a temperature or too late in the season, it will turn brown. And so quality in the terms of aesthetics and potentially palatability, I'm trying to do better at, but it's all organic. Now I'm not a, a certified repackager, so I put on the label uh, non-certified repackaging, but I'm taking it from a hundred pound bag and putting it in a two ounce bag. And so that transfer is the only thing that happens. I don't adulterate what I'm using other than if I see a foxtail or whatever, I'll pick it out. Um, all this stuff has to be stored pretty cold because it is organic. They don't spray. So there's no residue of any pesticide in there. So if there's like one egg of one animal <laughs> or one insect in there, it can, it can corrupt a hundred pounds. So you keep everything cold um, so those eggs won't mature and hatch. Um, so and, and so what what's your stump speech for recommending what you produce for people that might just be feeding their tortoises salads every week? Well, it's it's variety. You want to add variety. All the dried herbs have been selected for having particular superfood attributes um, because they're dried when you add them to say romaine lettuce is is the the typical example but it could be 
butter, red leaf, or green leaf, or even all the kales, all these dried things have, uh, they're more nutrient dense because of what I've selected. And because they're, they're dry, I'm not shipping water weight. Because I separate everything out and I'm not selling a blend, you can change variety on a day-to-day -day basis or a week-to-week -week basis. So the animal doesn't have become habituated to just eating this one thing. And um, then the fiber. Um, so a lot of grocery store greens, e even the more fibery ones are still not so fiber dense. When you add these dry things, you really up the fiber and fiber is super important for the microbiome in a tortoise. So, so I guess are you more than each, but. So these are, all of your products are freeze dried when you get them? Uh, no, they're, they're not freeze dried. A lot are traditionally air dried. Air dried. Um, so a freeze dried product in a sealed bag might last 20 plus years. Um, air dried in a sealed bag away from light humidity and all is easily five plus years. Um, it's like spices you might have for cooking. And, and they say you don't store spices right near the stove, yet everybody does. So they're, they're exposed to heat and light and all. The, the, all, all things like this are best stored in a cool, dry place away from light. And, and um, people sometimes, so I've been selling all these things, well, some of them since 2015. Um, a lot of products for at least four or five years now. And people say, oh, gee, I, I forgot this in the back of the cabinet. And it's a bag of nettle or alfalfa or whatever. And I say, well, smell it. If it doesn't smell funky, it's still good. And even if it may have lost some nutrient um, density because molecules will, will disassociate over time just sitting there, um, it still has all the fiber and it has a lot of the mineral nutrients as opposed to the vitamin nutrients. Although a lot of vitamin nutrients are still in there too. Vitamins being large complicated molecules as opposed to element like calcium, which is an element, it's not gonna break down. So it's still still got all that and it's good and it keeps variety up there. Um, and I've seen in the wild tortoises preferentially eating dried tasty bits of things um, alongside fresh. Um, so an example of that in South Africa, there's a, a succulent like plant that local people call um, tortoise food and some Afrikaans word. So it's, um, usually grows, well, it would grow everywhere if everything didn't eat it. But when I found it, it's usually at the base of some shrub because the shrub keeps large herbivores from sticking their face down in there and eating it because the shrub's all pokey. But the tortoise can walk in there and eat it. So a tortoise is in there sitting on the succulent, but they'll still eat the dry dead flowers in preference over all that greenery or at least alongside it that fell off the shrub. So there's a, a little dry flower bud there. I don't remember the plant, but it looked like a chamomile flower. And the tortoises, and these were angulate tortoises, it was in there preferentially picking all these little dead flowers and not eating the succulent. And the succulent is known well enough for tortoises to eat it that it's called tortoise food um, or tortoise wine, something like that. So the, the dry stuff is good. It, 
the the choice I make when I select things are, can I get it in a appropriate quantity? Um, there are some countries I won't buy things uh, that are produced there because there's too much of a reputation of sketchiness. And when you talk with the uh, really big importers like companies that bring in ocean freight containers full of things, um, they say, oh, we won't import from this country because there's too many times when we've done our own testing and it failed, even though it's USDA certified organic, there's still enough of a residue that we won't accept it. Um, so that, there, there's a, a tricky thing that I've learned over the last year. So there's like uh, minimally acceptable contamination. So say chemical XYZ, if it's three parts per million or greater, it's, it can't be considered organic. If it's two parts or one part per million, the, the lot can still be considered organic. And then there's uh, detectable, but not quantifiable, meaning that the detection science says that yes, it exists, but it's so minimal, it doesn't even register as one point or one part per million. Um, so a lot of things that come from some countries are always up in that minimum range or exceed it sometimes. And so I rely on the mega importers to clue me in what to avoid. Um, and in being in California, um, the, the West Coast or left coast, whatever you like to call it, um, there's a lot of <laughs> organic importers here. I mean, or in Seattle and, and Portland area and Southern California, um, tons and tons and tons. There's one importer in Connecticut, but they don't seem to... I mean, I've called some places and say, gee, you know, I'd like to get a pound of your hibiscus to look at its quality. Um, I buy it, or can you send me like a couple gram sample or whatever? Okay, and the conversation goes, and what do you do with this? And I go, oh, I sell it as tortoise food. They don't want to deal with you. They're like, no, we're, we're not going to sell it to someone that's going to sell it as tortoise food. Other places you talk to them, and they like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> they, they greet it like, yeah, that's really interesting. So. A mixed reaction. I wonder if they think that uh, the tortoise uh, supplement or tortoise food market isn't big enough for them. Like, uh, if you were selling tortoise tea, we'd definitely hit you up. Well, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of boutique tea shops, and I'm sure I buy a whole lot more than they do. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that's reality, but I'm thinking of a perception of somebody of like, oh, yeah. I don't know. Because well, I mean, all you're you're doing all the heavy lifting and the hard work to provide food availability for a lot of tortoises that that people just don't want to aren't going to have a hard time going through. And I think that what you're doing is great because I'm thinking of strictly like grassland or savanna species that we think or we have this propensity to feed lots of grocery store greens that are just incredibly rich. And we feed those often when we should be looking at things like chamomile, hibiscus, mulberry. These, you know, these tortoises have mostly evolved to eat a lot of, basically a lot of nothing, you know, like low nutrient, quality nutrient, um, but a lot of it. At least that's from my perspective. And I think that the, the products that you offer and the food that you offer for these tortoises should be included in a tortoise's diet. Well, it, it, I would flip that. I would say grocery store greens are pretty low in nutrient density, and they're certainly low in fiber. 
the great thing about things like romaine is it's high water content. Um, and as long as that's uh, matched with a good amount of fiber so that the tourist doesn't become uh, having diarrhea, um, then, then you're capturing as much of the nutrients out of the romaine as you can because the food bolus spends more time in the digestive tract. Um, if you eat a lot of romaine, everything just sort of goes ripping through. And so the digestive tract doesn't have um, good opportunity to grab everything. So if you feed something like romaine and then you add the moringa or mulberry or nettle, now that adds a lot of fiber. So now the tourists can actually mush all that up into a bolus of food and, and change its rate of passage through the digestive tract such that it can extract the moisture and all the nutrients. And the fiber is also important because the microbiome relies on the fiber. You hear all this stuff about probiotics and prebiotics for human diets um, because we eat too much soft, squishy food. Um, so people will do better with higher fiber diet. So probiotic um, is uh, something that the microorganisms can actually consume. A prebiotic, let's see if I get this right. Prebiotic is something that's fibrous enough that there's a substrate for those microorganisms to live on. I mean, they're not just free swimming in your in the fluid of your of the food in your digestive tract. They have to be on something, they need a structure, a matrix or a substrate to grow on. And so um, probiotic is fiber prebiotic. I'm getting those confused right now. Anyways, one of those is something for the organisms to live on. The others are things organisms consume. And uh, there's a woman who did a study at uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo where she was just looking at how fiber would affect gut retention time. And she serendipitously found out that the more diverse the fiber, the more resilient the microbiome is in the gut. And something I caution people on if they and feeding a lot of romaine and just putting the vitamin mineral mix on it, that might be nutritionally complete. But if you start adding fiber, do it slowly. Don't just all of a sudden dump a bunch of fiber in the diet or you're going to literally constipate the tourists. Ease it in a little bit at a time so the tourist's microbiome can catch up and the, and the gut can adjust. Um, I, I probably spend way too much time on Facebook, but people are always lamenting, oh, my, my 20 gram sulcata won't eat this dry, dead Timothy hay. That's what they say they're supposed to eat. Well, no baby tortoise hatches and say, gee, what's the dead stuff I can eat? Because hay is dead grass. They want to eat fresh things with high water content. And aside from that example I made with the uh, uh, angulate tortoises in South Africa, Tortoises will preferentially eat things with water content over dry things. And so the stuff I have is dry. So I suggest mixing it with romaine so that you have the water content and the fiber. Um, romaine in and of itself is not a bad food. Um, it's just missing some elements 
uh, and by element, I don't mean um, from the periodic table of elements, I mean nutrition elements. And number one is, is the fiber. Um, so fiber in and of itself is not a nutrient, but it provides a matrix in the gut for nutrients to be better absorbed and managed by the tortoise. Well, you know, I started using your products in 2019, right when I was ramping up my work with hingebacks, and I really credit my success to your 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 plants. Really, um, I mean, I'm getting dozens and dozens of eggs from very few animals each year, and uh, I, I really recommend learning more uh, from Will. Go to his website, capitolafarms.com. Um, try, try these. They're, they're amazing. And, and I love that you've put together the variety packs so that people can get a selection and, you know, they don't have to choose from the 30 or more things that you offer. Well, I, I make it so you can, if you want, with a build your own. Yes, you can, but you don't have to, right? And I think when I first came to you, I and I saw people on Facebook, they didn't know what to choose, right? Because you had everything. But now you have the best of both worlds. I I go, I get exactly what I need. Um, But if someone wants to try it out, they can start with a variety pack, several different plant families, different nutrients, different secondary compounds and they're not having to choose you know make yeah, a lot it, of decisions it sounds a little highfalutin but i i like to think of them as the variety packs as being curated choices absolutely <laughs> um, that's exactly what it is i i have some customers that will buy multiple pound bags of one item like they might buy five pounds of moringa five pounds of mulberry two pounds of hibiscus three pounds of nettle. I mean, just pounds and pounds of everything. I'm shipping huge boxes of it to them like every other month. And I, and I sort of have this fantasy in my mind, wow, they must have like a huge, huge tortoise collection. But I, I've noticed when I'm at shows, sometimes people will buy it for themselves because um, I don't have a brick and mortar to finance, right? I'm just reselling online and at shows. And so the prices I have are pretty good relative to a boutique tea shop, even though it's to a great extent the same thing. I noticed some things, um, the initial price when you look on Amazon is better. And even if you have Prime, unless you meet the minimum purchase to go into free shipping, my price is better. Um, Not everything, but most things. But to be able to go to one place and buy a variety pack, you can't do that on Amazon. And a marketing thing I did is I made sure that, I mean, I buy from wholesalers that you could go to and you just pay the retail price, not the wholesale price. Um, But if you were to buy two ounces each of five different things, none of the wholesalers I go to have all five of those things. So if you wanted to get say the the three item variety pack my price will still be better than your retail price at the wholesalers i go to i'm okay with a little less margin to have that advantage um and and this has all been organic right it organic from the start 
Well, and, aside from the cactus, <laughs> yeah, I have you didn't thoughts. set out to do this, right? It, it, yeah. it just grew and grew and grew. It really has a service to the tortoise community. Well, and and also, I mean, I feed a lot of romaine. My backyard won't support all the tortoises I have, so I, I'll buy cases of romaine or or escarole or green leaf and red leaf, and um, so so. Yeah, bouncing around a little bit. When I, when I was at the um, Philadelphia Zoo, we were a beta test site for the um, tortoise or the herbivore reptile diets from Walkabout Farms. Um, Susan Donahue developed that. And so she came to the zoo and looked at what we were already feeding and said, gee, to make this diet more complete and nutritious, you add these herbs and, and these vitamin powders to your overall diet that you're already feeding and your tortoises will do better. And we have prehensile, help, prehensile tail skinks and iguanas and other herbivorous animals. Um, we were early in breeding bearded dragons before they were like 80% of a reptile show. And we, we fed them on mostly a herbivorous diet. And so that was an influence on me to to do all this thinking back to that i even reached out to susan donahue and asked her if she might want to um do her diets again and she didn't want to do it she's into other animal interests now um but i still talk with her about some of this stuff and she she definitely guided a lot of the idea of making these kinds of things more widely available. Uh, I think she called her diets quantum diets produced by uh, Walkabout Farms. She grew a lot of the ingredients herself. She didn't call them organic. Um, so that's, that's uh, like I said before, a term that some people think is uh, sort of green and left or whatever, and other people just accept it for what it is, but it, it makes a difference. It is a quality safety concern. So, yeah. So I'm sort of copying a little bit of what Susan Donahue did in a sense, only she, she sold mixes to zoos specifically formulated to go with what the zoo already had in abundance that they were feeding. I'm suggesting that you as a tortoise keeper continue with what you're feeding, but add these things. Uh, some people think it's a standalone food, like you're just going to sprinkle a bunch of dried mulberry in there and the tourists will eat it and everything's fine. I think it still needs to be mixed with something fresh. Although a lot of the tortoises I have will eat all this stuff just dry by itself in a little haystack on a feeding plate. Um, what I actually do, though, aside from challenging the tortoises if they'll eat it that way, is I mix it all in with greens. And I have like um, those, those square plastic jars that you could buy for storage, or if you buy a bulk Parmesan cheese or something, or, or the, the really big, um, I think uh, 36 ounce Zumed pellet diet, those big square jars. I have all those in a file cabinet in my garage right next to where I prepare food. And I have them all, they all have a lid except one. And so what I do is I open up the file drawers and I just take a, a half cup or a cup of whatever it is and sprinkle it in all the fresh greens. And then I move the open lid to the next one. 
So next day when I feed, I just go to the one with open lid. So I cycle through everything. Mostly what I use is the Moringa and the Mulberry. Um, now I've been using a lot of the dry grasses I just started uh, having. And by, by constantly using one item on a rotating schedule, you know, Tauruses are never picky. They just walk over the food plate and eat from one edge to the other. Um, of all the tortoises I have, the, the pickiest ones are the pancakes. They, they don't seem so keen on nettle. Uh, on nettle days, I know they're going to eat less. Other than that, no one seems to care. And redfoots and radiateds. <laughs> uh, to me, if, if you offered them a buffet, they would just start at one end and eat through to the other end. They're very indiscriminate. I don't know, am I, am I hitting your question or your comments off? A absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And then other packaged foods or commercial diets that sell the, the two Zoomed diets. And I make sure my price point's better than Amazon or Chewy. And I sell the um, Purina Mills organic layer crumbles. So the Zoomed aren't organic, they're non-GMO. Um, and I actually ran them through a, a herbicide pesticide um, testing service and they come out with things that are identifiable but all below threshold. Um, and by things, I mean different, different herbicides or pesticides, but they're all below a uh, detectable threshold. So it's only known as being present, but it's such a small amount, it's not quantifiable. Um, I'm about to do that with the new diet that Arcadia has. Um, Monday, I'll drop that oh. off, see what I see. And then um, Hikari has a, a mulberry food. I'm gonna test that as well, because I'm just curious. Huh. I mean, Hikari, it all comes out of Japan. And well, yeah. if there's any culture where everything they produce is um, super, everything about quality and precision and perfection is something produced in Japan. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see if it actually, even though it's not labeled as organic, will pass as organic. Um, it's super expensive food, but if it, if it passes that test, I'll, I'll have it. And um, like the Zoomed, I'll probably buy the biggest bulk I can and break it down into smaller amounts and beat their small amount price. And, and this is what I love, Will, because you're always looking out for us to find new things. But you mentioned a product that you have that gave me pause a little bit and, and you called it layer crumbles. Um, you might also know it as chicken food. And to be yeah. quite honest, when you started uh, touting chicken food uh, a few years ago, maybe like a year and a half ago or something, I, I took pause. Actually, I think it was at the beginning of COVID, I remember. But so tell us about these layer crumbles. All right. So um, way back uh, 1989, 1990, somewhere in there, I was attending a, a seminar on a woman, Kay Booth. Um, who published a book called 40 Years with Tortoises, talked about her history of raising California desert tortoises. And she raised them almost exclusively on chicken layer crumbles by Purina because it's a food for chickens to lay eggs. 
So it's really high in calcium. It has D3 in it. And um, aside from metabolic needs, uh, birds and reptiles are pretty darn close. So I, I remembered that and I started trying chicken layer crumbles with tortoises. And it's a, instead of say like using a vitamin mineral powder, I mix in the chicken layer crumbles and it was working fine. I'm getting good egg production out of pancake tortoises. And then I noticed they have an organic version. So I got that. And now instead of 40 years with tortoises is now 80 years. So chicken layer crumbles as a commercial food to feed tortoises has been used longer than anything else as a commercially produced food. Um, although it's off label, you might say, uh, it's a really good food. It works great. Um, people have raised concern that the corn in it might um, ferment in the hindgut of a tortoise, produce alcohol, and then the tortoise would, would have alcohol poisoning. But there's, there's no reason why corn as a carbohydrate would do that any more readily than any other carbohydrate, like if you feed a little sweet potato or something like that. So then it gets back to the fiber and pushing things through so it doesn't sit in the gut and ferment. And so I caution on the bag with uh, the chicken layer crumbles, make sure there's a high fiber component in the diet. But I, I, for a long time, I would send like a one, a one ounce sample with every order for people to try. And there are people that consistently buy the two or four pound bag from me every month or two and they raise their baby tortoises on the chicken layer crumbles with chopped greens and they get good growth results. Um, Tom, that was the exact question I wanted to ask, Will, because we mentioned layer crumbles. And if you're not familiar with chickens, um, it can be very confusing. But I, Will, I remember reading your article on chicken layer crumbles several years. It might have been during the pandemic, like early, mid-2020. And uh, I happen to have chickens. We keep chick. I have six chickens. So I read that and I was curious. And we actually have organic layer crumble, like the 16%, I think is um, what they typically sell. And I would throw a tiny, don't tell my wife, they're her chickens. Uh, but I would take a little handful and about once a month, just mix it up with their greens. Um, and they would, they would hammer it. They really did eat a lot of it. And it's one yeah. of those things that took me by surprise. And you know, I probably don't do once a month with it as often anymore, but I do occasionally throw it in there as like a nutritional supplement. Or if I see them start laying eggs, uh, if I'm a little late, I'll start offering it there for a little extra calcium here and there. But it's one of those things that I think uh, herpetoculture is kind of known for kind of reverse engineering products to fit our, our needs. And just because it's labeled as chicken food doesn't mean it can't be used for other things. Yeah, so over 80 years now, because if you look on Amazon and look up 40 years with tortoises, now I think the, the kids or grandkids of that woman, Kay Booth, have published 80 years with tortoises. Um, so that's easily going back to the 1940s. People were using chicken food for tortoises, so it's hardly cutting-edge herpetoculture point of view. Um, but yeah, thinking outside the box, you might say. Um, yeah, it, it, it works well. 
I use it a lot with all the forest species like the redfoots and the planicotta. Um, yeah, the yellowfoots are all up in the Central Valley, but the uh, woman up there, it, her, her name's Yvonne. I call her my tourist wife. Um, she's the primary moderator on Tortoise Forum. Um, she uses it occasionally. And uh, it, we even used it at the zoo for a little while, but that's before Susan Donahue was coming in with the quantum diets. And, and that was Susan's one comment that, you know, it's not bad, but not enough fiber. Um, so... You, you can't overfiber too, like, like fresh neonates just out of the egg, their first few meals. I don't think fiber should be a concern if you're feeding fresh greens because their, their guts and the muscles that squeeze food along the intestinal tract aren't that well developed. I, I don't start adding high fibrous things until they're six months old or so. Um, other than that, it seems to be too much for them. Um, I have a, a tea bag cut of mulberry where the particle size is maybe millimeter squares. It's not dusty at all, and I'll add that to their diet. And now the new grasses I have, um, I've been using that, and it seems to work okay with, with fresh hatchlings. But like big bulky fiber I, I keep away from fresh hatchlings so they just don't have the microbiome in their gut established yet nor nor i'm speculating the muscular strength to squeeze the food through and create boluses of food i mean their diet's been egg yolk right <laughs> so pretty pretty liquidy rich food but it takes a while to transition but after that yeah, fiber is an important element of it. And that's something that chicken layer crumbles don't have is high fiber. And you mentioned 16% protein and people, oh, it's too much. Well, it's not supposed to be the whole diet. It's supposed to be part of the diet. Um, and the, the old Missouri is 15% protein. So 1% more than that. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of protein analysis is sort of false. Um, I forget the name of the formula, but they, they, whoever's doing the analysis will break down the food and measure all the nitrogen. And then with uh, some formula, they take the amount of nitrogen and say, well, it's this percent of protein, which is always going to be high by that method because there's free nitrogen in all the plant matter. So maybe one to 3%. So if you're feeding alfalfa and it came out 18%, that can really be as low as 15%. And if it's uh, field-grown alfalfa under conventional agriculture, they pump it full of nitrogenous fertilizer. So it's even going to be more um, of a false reading. And how you, can, how you can see this for yourself, if you go to a website that shows total protein and then they break down all the amino acids that are present, the accumulative amino acid value is less than the protein value, not because there's some other uh, amino acids they didn't measure, but because there's free nitrogen that calculates out as protein when it's not. Um, a lot of times to look at a, a 
composition of a food item, I'll go to a website called Feedopedia. Um, and it's all kinds of non-traditional feeds that are in there. And then the USDA has a, a food database. And now they do a lot of commercial foods like, you know, Chef Boyardee, um, raviolis in a can. They'll give you a nutritional analysis of that. But you can also go there and see the nutritional analysis of beet greens, raw, uncooked. And so you get an idea of what's in there. Usually I just look for calcium phosphorus ratio. Um, and if that's good, usually everything else falls in line pretty well. Um, yeah. So I've done a couple talks at TTPG and one for Herpeton, which was um, a conference here in Southern California. And I've done the, the more school lesson type uh, tourist nutrition talk on a couple of blogs for Cal and Taurus Society or Club. Um, but there, there's a lot of simple ways that you can sort all this stuff out for yourself, but a lot of people don't want to take that time. So I guess that's Tom's point. Is there a lot of convenience with what I'm selling? Um, some of the variety packs are called calcium boost. Everything has a 10 to one calcium phosphorus ratio or higher. Uh, all aminos. Um, there's another one I call fiber flow where everything is really high in fiber. Um, now I have the tourist grass and I have a uh, popular tourist weeds, which is plantain, dandelion, and nettle. Um, when I sell it shows people walk up and they're sort of like overwhelmed with all this stuff on this table they've never seen before. And, and, um, my niece comes and helps me now sell. She's picked up a lot of the selling points you might say and she's much better at engaging people in selling than i am but when people want to know something more technical or more specific i'll talk with them and a lot of people really like the idea even if they don't want to buy the product they like the idea um i've had people the the number one sale of one pound bag of chamomile are people that also happen to have chickens and so they're walking through the reptile show and they have chickens or pheasants or some kind of ground bird that scratches. Oh, chamomile. Oh, the price. It's so good. And so they'll buy it and they'll feed the chamomile to their chickens. I guess chickens like chamomile. I don't know. I've not had chickens for a long, long time. Um, and I've sold some of the dried raspberry to people that have um, stick insects. But apparently a lot of stick insects won't eat the dry. They'll, they'll only eat fresh. Um, but some will eat it dry, very few. There's a local guy here in San Diego that has a big stick insect collection. And I gave him a bunch of stuff to try. And uh, some species of stick insect will eat anything. But a lot of them are pretty fussy. Um, there's a, a local guy in Southern California who commercially breeds grasshoppers now to sell as food like crickets. I gave him some foods to try, but I, I didn't get any feedback from him. Um, that, that's cool. At least he tried it and maybe he tells people it's good or no good. I don't know. I need to try feeding my dubias some of your products. I, I just, I've never thought of that until right now. Well, um, uh, I forget the guy's name, but there was a, a Canadian not-for-profit that bred a lot of reptiles. The 
Hoffman or something like that. Um, it was a consortium of people and they, they bred, they're the people that bred Jamaican boas to such an extent it crashed the market on imported Jamaican boas so that it was cheaper to buy a captive bred one from them. Um, and they would go, they would take um, uh, mouse food to a mill and get all the cubes broken down into a powder. And that's what they got loaded their, their crickets. And that's when the zoophobia worms were first becoming popular. And they, they raised all their crickets and zoophobia worms on, on the crushed uh, mouse pellets. And I talked with that guy about using the chicken layer crumbles and he said he, he tried it and it worked out good. Um, oh, that's, 30 years ago, sort of a long time. Um, yeah, I would imagine a couple of people might be listening to this podcast that are under 30 years of age, that this all may seem like new, interesting stuff to or boring because of my monotone, but I don't know, I'm always willing to engage people on, on this kind of a topic. I prefer email because I could take my time and think about what I'm saying or a telephone call when people text it's always frustrating because I'm, I'm not like a teenage girl can whip my thumbs around on a little keyboard really fast so it's like one finger punching out a answer and so at least i can do three or four fingers at a time on a traditional keyboard and of course talking on a telephone is good too i think you made some more great points about what you're selling with Capitola Farms is like, um, it's not just for tortoises. These are nutritionally um, great products that you can feed to dubia roaches, uh, pheasants, chickens, and a variety of different things. So don't get pigeonholed and think that just because, um, don't get pigeonholed into thinking it's just a tortoise product. It is a, an animal nutrition product with uh, tortoises in mind. Yeah. Say, but, uh, you I, know, I, so thinking outside the box. I, I've sold a lot to people that have uromastics and um, mostly the flowers. And yeah, I, I gotten some feedback that there's too many little sticks in there. So like if you buy calendula flowers, sometimes there's the base of the flower that's a stem. And yeah, so technically I guess it's a stick but I focus on that it's organic as opposed to it's all been cleaned and refined. Um, I can put that stuff through an initial grind to break all that up to smaller particles that the, that the uh, lizard can tongue dart. Um, like I sell a lot of the whole rose petals to people with bearded dragons because you can put a couple rose petals on your hand and a bearded dragon will come over and tongue, tongue dart each rose petal. And it's sort of fun, sort of like, when you feed a cricket to a chameleon, um, it's very interactive. And then uh, there's a woman who breeds the, the um, I forget what they are now, Delicatessima iguanas. Mm. She was buying a lot of things from me for a while, but she went a little more high end and she just buys fresh branches of mulberry shipped to her as opposed to mulberry leaf. Um, wow. Also, yeah, well, it's significantly more expensive, I'm sure. It uh, is. <laughs> and, and, but her iguanas um, are all excellent looking and she does well with them. 
Uh, I've also sold foods to people with prehensile tail skinks. Um, there's a woman in Arizona that breeds um, sugar gliders and some kind of small rodent called a degu, if I'm saying that right. And she buys the mm -hmm. flowers and feeds that to them. Um, I primarily focus on tortoise keepers because I'm a tortoise keeper. Um, when I bought large quantities from the companies that think it's cool, I'm selling it to tortoise keepers. They always say, well, have you considered like uh, hamsters and gerbils and all those things? And now more and more, you see even Walmart has a in-store brand of mixed flowers and things for, for hamsters and gerbils and all. So the whole idea has definitely expanded. The first person I saw selling any, any kind of a blend or mix of stuff is Tyler Stewart from Tortoise Supply. And about a year later, Zoomed came out with their salad toppers, but neither of those are labeled as organic, although they may contain organic ingredients, I don't know. But again, they're all blends and mixes. And my idea is to keep it all separate so that the day-to-day -day is a little different to keep variety going. If you add the same blend every day, then you lose the concept of variety from day-to-day. -day. And I think that's important as behavioral enrichment. Um, if one day you put in rose flowers in the diet and it's all this red, um, Definitely, I see the star tortoises get a little more excited about that and the, and the um, spider tortoises. They see the rose in there and they're, like you were saying earlier, uh, Ryan, sometimes the facial expression seems to change or their eyes bulge or their throat pumping goes more. When I put rose petals in, uh, the spider tortoises and the star tortoises seem a lot more engaged with the food that day. Um, all the testudos seem to really go for the chamomile. And I mean, if you just sprinkle chamomile flowers on a feed tile, the testudo will come over and individually eat each little flower. Um, yeah, so they all, they all seem to have different appeals, but I just use everything in that rotating schedule, like I mentioned, all the one gallon jars in the file cabinet. Well, we're, we're starting to run short on time here. It's been a while, but I do not want to end before we talk about the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance. You're a part of that? <laughs> yeah. Um, Would you I mind telling so. us a little bit about that? You told us earlier that you uh, you have some Galapagos tortoises, some Galops. So I'm curious what, what that's like working with them and working with the Alliance. It's it's an evolving structure. Um, so there there's a fella who... He seems to be very private, so I'll not mention his name. Um, it has more Galapagos tortoises than anyone else in the world outside of Ecuador. And um, he's been involved with lots of different animals, um, different birds and, and fish and all, but he's decided to put his energy more into his Galapagos tortoises, but he, he still has a full-time occupation outside of animals. And he's trying to figure out how to segue what he's created into something bigger. And that's what the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance is. It started out as just the California Consortium because um, he was feeding animals to us here in California, myself and a couple other people. And then it, it 
I mean, you quickly fill the capacity with Galapagos tortoises if you look at them long-term. Um, so he, he's a little frustrated by the, the whole thing of not being able to get a captive bred wildlife permit, um, even though he's probably the most successful Galapagos tortoise breeder in the world um, outside of the Galapagos Island. So he started figuring out a way to gift them to people. So he's in compliance with the law, but still not just like handing out money on a street corner um, because a lot of people quickly want to monetize everything. So the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance is um, still a young entity that's growing in, in vision and capacity and, and capability. Um, its primary public presence now is when I do trade shows, the, my booth partner, Mark Wilson, is um, a lot more able to communicate the goals um, of, of the greater idea of the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance. And the, I guess the principle is to have true bred species in North America, because it's not like we're going to go to the Galapagos Islands and collect these or collect those. So there's been a lot of effort put into genotyping individuals and uh, tracking them with pit tags and monitoring their growth and trying to keep true species true. Um, I, I don't know if there's still a, a cloning advisory group in the AZA or not, because I've been out of it for a long time, but I guess because of the space commitment required for Galapagos tortoises, a lot of zoos are declining to breed or they're not concerned with um, species specific. And I think that they settled on just one or maybe two species, um, true species as opposed to integrates. So the goal is to not, not breed or create integrates, but the, the driver is to create managed populations of specific species. And, and um, I forget which ones are which. I know we have a good we, meaning that's sort of pretty misrepresenting. The Galapagos Tortoise Alliance has um, true breeding porteri and uh, microfees. And I think there's work on a couple other full species as well as all the integrates. And um, the, the technology required to sort out this species from that species has advanced a lot in the past 10 years. Um, so it's just trying to make something functional out of this giant collection beyond having a giant collection. And um, so there, there's, I think, I don't know, it, it's, we're now, pretty tightly associated with Ashley at a zoo in Texas with the stud book. Um, I don't know all the cross-pollination between the private stud book that Mark manages and the, and the um, AZA stud book that Ashley manages. There's definitely a lot more animals outside the AZA than inside the AZA. And it seems like an unfair burden to put all that on an AZA stud book keeper. Um, and, and that all comes down to who's the curator and director of the zoo, what that stud bookkeeper is allowed to do. But um, apparently she's doing a, a good job of that and keeping it sorted out. And, and Mark's 
brought into the catalog all the non-AZA animals. Well, absolutely not all of them, but a great deal of them that are associated with the GTA. Um, the primary in-person meetings we have are at the Turtle and Tortoise Preservation Group meeting in, the, in November every year. And um, I, I've passed animals on that I've grown up bigger than I can handle here in my house to other people that were already in the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance and a couple of people outside. But the, the criteria I use are the same criteria that, that um, you might say our, our founder used and that there are people that already had experience and, and um, seem to not be so enamored with uh, monetizing everything as they were with just the joy of it. Um, I, I've been not so uh, consistent with getting growth records to Mark, which has upset him on that account. But I, I mean, when I'm, when I'm at work all day and I'm pit tagging hundreds of mice or measuring tumors or whatever I'm doing there, I want to come home and just enjoy an animal and not make it a scientific experiment. And um, I can tell they're growing because there's a consistent white growth seam. And when I pick them up, there's that little scale in your head for the size of the thing in your hand. It just automatically says, oh yeah, that's good. Or, oh, something's not right here. And so that, that's what I use. And um, they, they're all growing good. Some of the other people, I think I have the slowest growth rate of those that are monitoring in the GTA, but they're bowling ball smooth. Um, the growth is super uniform and consistent. And so, I don't know, I, we bred galops at the Philly Zoo and we had eggs at the Fresno Chaffee Zoo, but they didn't hatch. They were found too late to artificially incubate. The ones at the Philly Zoo went to the Colonial Research Institute in Florida. Um, and so I, I've had experience growing um, galops before the other two people that were in the initial California consortium didn't, but they have a lot of tourist experience. Galops are definitely different than say leopards or sulcatas. Um, they're absolutely different. Um, and I would say animals in your own collection is an entirely different ball game than animals you take care of in a zoo collection. And I, I feel pretty comfortable with that because I've been on both sides of both of those equations. Um, so the Galapagos Tortoise Alliance is primarily a way to create a legacy out of this huge collection and um, share the opportunity to preserve true species as well as integrates in North America. I guess at some point it'd be a fantasy to, to swap cathabred animals out of Europe or somewhere else where there's a, a credible stud bookkeeping system. Um, I don't know that it would ever be possible to create enough credibility to work with uh, the government of Ecuador, a couple of zoos have, but usually it's animals going back um, because they had a low gene pool there. 
I don't, I don't know. I absolutely don't know if any animals have come out of Ecuador, at least legally in a long time. Uh, and for those that don't know, the Galapagos Islands are part of the country of Ecuador. I've confused people with that before. Um, so, so that's the deal. And uh, so some of the people in the GTA have, have, I don't know, hundreds, but definitely dozens and dozens of animals out of the primary source um, breeder. And um, in a lot of different parts of the country, mostly Southern states where the climate's good to have them outside most of the time. I couldn't imagine having Galapagos tortoises in say Winnipeg or something like that in Canada, although uh, a really dedicated facility could do it. Um, it's just a lot more work than to have them outside in say Texas or Florida or Southern California or Arizona. Um, I don't know the status of the affiliation, but I know Richard Fife is a beneficiary of some of the animals out of the GTA um, and a, a few other people that I'll not mention. Richard Fife's very public about his collections. I don't feel like I'm crossing any boundary there. Um, but a lot of people, these animals want to stay pretty private because as we learned from Fife and his collection, it's a target. Um, some were stolen out of one of the zoos in Florida recently, Galapagos tortoises. Then there's this um, person I can't characterize <laughs> as I choose to in a forum like this, but the guy at the zoo in one of the flyover states that was selling them through a pet shop in Henderson, Nevada. Um, I mean, that, that kind of thing is so damaging because it, it sort of makes it look like everyone's just in it for, for the money. And, one time on Facebook, someone said, if you could change one thing about herpetoculture, what would it be? And I said, demonetize it. I mean, if all ball pythons only sold for $100, there would be even more variety of ball pythons out there because now the only reason someone's buying your ball python is because it is that much different. It's not because, oh, this is a $50,000 ball python. If there's some kind of artificial price gap on ball pythons at $100, the diversity of gene types and expressions would be more, not less. But um, I, I'm sure if anyone's into ball pythons, they probably just like are smashing their head into a wall over that comment. But if you think about it, how economics works, that that's a true statement. Um, so that is an incredibly interesting thing. I've never heard that before. And the more I'm thinking about it, after you said it, I I think that's such an interesting take to to discuss. Demonetize reptiles. Excellent. Well, sorry, I think that's a, just an excellent point. I've never heard that in my life, but I like it. Well, that's it, it, something that zoos have done. I mean, back in the seventies, you know, gorillas were like a quarter million dollars or five hundred thousand, and and there was this all this idea that that um, the Texas ranchers that have like a population of two hundred rhinos or whatever oh, they're going to get into gorillas now and monetize it. And, and maybe some of them are super ethical and keep good track of parentage and, and genealogy or pedigree and all, but I imagine a lot of them wouldn't. So what the AZA did in part of the decision was to demonetize the cost of animals when they transfer them from one institution to another. 
It's just, it's a transfer. There's no declaration of ownership. And um, there's another benefit of that now too. I talked with a, a zoo registrar lately. They said, yeah, if we just put on a breeding loan, we just have to announce it. We don't need captive bred wildlife permit because there's been no money exchange. It's not a commercialization. So it's actually the commercialization of some of these things that have caused a problem. Um, and, and I get it. I mean, I sell the foods and I sell them for a profit. When I sell animals at shows and people complain about the price, they, I'll usually tell them, well, the cost of the animal is nothing compared to how much you're gonna spend over the life of the animal to maintain it. So when people say, hey, what's a good tortoise to get into? I would say radiated tortoises. They're beautiful. They have that nice dome shape. They're super plastic. They can endure a wide range of husbandry situations and do pretty darn well. They look good and they're personable. You could scratch them on the neck like an Aldabra or a Galapagos. Mm -hmm. and they'll sit there and they'll stretch out for it and all. I mean, it's like the perfect pet tortoise and they don't get ginormous, you know, like, like a 30 pound radiated is pretty big. I mean, that's like huge. And, and um, oh, but they're so expensive. And I go, yeah, all over the lifetime of the tortoise, that expense is nothing. So yeah, to, to demonetize or, or sort of moderate the, mon mon the monetization of it all would be good. I mean, it's never gonna happen because you'd have to be a draconian tortoise person to do that and just tell people these are the rules. I know it's not gonna happen, but it, it's, it's food for thought. And it's what this fellow in Florida has done. He's demonetized Galapagos tortoises. And so to me, it sort of makes it a little more good. Um, there's some successful breeders of Galapagos in California, Rodriguez Colonians, and they're selling them, but I, I get the distinct impression, not based on a conversation, but just observation, they're very selective about who they sell the animals to without regard to the price. Um, there's one show we did where to, to popularize the Galapagos Tourist Association. Mark made a um, one of those like uh, retractable banners and he has some t-shirts and a few other kitschy things to sell to generate a little funds and all. So I brought some Galapagos tortoises there, not for sale, but just to show so people could see a live Galapagos tortoise. Well, this one show, the rule was everything has to be for sale because it's during COVID and there's all these rules and if it's not for sale, then it's like an exhibition and it requires a different kind of license, blah, 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 blah. Some infinitum about rules of being able to have a show during COVID. So I, I put uh, a Galapagos tortoise in an enclosure and it's around, I don't know, five, six inches, and I put a price $18,000 on it because I <laughs> didn't want to sell it. I had no intention of selling it. And there are people genuinely considering buying it. So, I mean, it seemed like they were more than just tire kickers. <laughs> um, and, and so also we had some at another show and a, before we open, a guy's walking by and he says, oh, what are those? And they're in a little carry box. So they have an opaque lid, but you can see through the side. I said, oh, they're Galapagos tortoises. And he said, oh, how much are they? And I said, well, you know what they say? If you have to ask, you probably can't afford it. And the guy opens up <laughs> an envelope with like a stack of hundreds. He says, I think I can afford it. Um, 
And I said, well, they're not really for sale, but I, I had a little fun with the conversation. Um, it, it, it upset my booth partner, Mark, because he thought I might actually sell it, but I, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> because I, I purposely decided no matter what I do with the galops, I'll not sell them. Um, I have nine more growing up in, in the indoor enclosures now. And unless I buy property, by the time they get too big, they'll go to someone else in the GTA um, or someone else become a GTA person uh, with anticipation of getting them, I guess. I don't know. Seemed a little controversial with our group that I brought two people into the fold, but I announced it and asked for feedback. And, you know, these are people that better fit the criteria for getting them than I did when I first got one. So seems like it's all go, but sometimes it's hard to consider if people are sort of worrying about losing control or or they're worried it's going to be monetized and sort of ruin it like the dude out of the flyover state or what yeah i don't know um but i i i don't know it's it's not for a lack of concern for their future it's with regard for their future that i just gave some away and, you know, you're eventually you're going to have to bring people into the fold anyways, in order to kind of, I, I think the thought behind it is great. And you have to kind of grow that and something like Galapagos tortoises, you're probably going to have to grow it a little more slowly and organically to get the right people involved, but you still have to bring people in. But, exactly um, my perspective, Ryan, 100% exactly my thought process. I mean, that's how I ended up here because the, the, the fellow has all these, he's like, gee, uh, I, I got to expand the base of people I, I cooperate with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just use the exact same criteria as best as I understood it. I, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, Will, we're getting close uh, to the end of our conversation here. Tom, did you have any, uh, anything you wanted to share or ask before we. Well, it's been great Sorry. having you. Thank you. Yeah, great as an I, understatement. So much information, Will. I, I've learned a lot, and uh, I think our listeners are definitely going to learn a lot. Um, I would ask if if you want to share your your website or Facebook or how people can get in touch with you to better supplement the nutritional needs of their tortoises and or other critters. Yeah, I I um the good and bad of the name of the company is that it's an uncommon word, and um. People have humorously relabeled it Capadildo Farms. It's Capadolo Farms. Um, and oh, that's a different website. Yeah. yeah. So Capadolo is the native Malagasy <laughs> word for flat tailed tortoises. So that's why I liked it. Um, so it's, it's K A P I D O L O farms all one word and um, i think you got tom so well he's losing it right now we may have lost him he's gonna have to stay muted now because he's not gonna stop laughing oh yeah well when, when someone <laughs> said that i think they said it to be sort of obtuse humorous and i said i'm not as familiar with marital aids as you are so i guess that's why that happened um so anyways uh 
Yeah, I guess if you don't know what that is, then it doesn't matter. And if you do, then it's funny. So um, K-A-P-I-D-O-L-O, Capodolo, pretty phonetic. At least I pronounce it phonetically. That might not be the right way to say it. Um, farms, and it's, it's .com. It's also my handle on Tortoise Forum, and it's also my Facebook page. Um, and my phone number is on the Facebook and on the web page as well as email. Um, if someone has a question, if they just call, answer it. Um, I don't answer Capitola Farms because it's also my phone number for me. When a friend calls, I just say, hi, it's Will. And um, that seems to catch some people off guard. But anyways. I'll make sure I have uh, all that information in the show notes as well. As okay. well as we'll share it on our um, on the Facebook page and stuff to make sure everyone knows. Although I have a feeling that most of our listeners probably know you already, but uh, if they not, they they will know where to find you now and and how to supplement their feeds and yeah, just talk tortoises. Yeah, on my regular Facebook, I'm pretty much a smart ass, but on Capitola Farms, I tend not to be at all. Yeah, I like your comments to be quite honest <laughs> all right will i can't thank you enough for taking time to talk with me and tom today on let's talk turtles um maybe we'll catch up another time and see where capodolo farms goes in the future and um and either way thank you so much i appreciate it well, i thank both you guys for this opportunity and the, the chance to um blather on about what i'm doing and a little bit of history on where i'm coming from with doing all this and uh, I, I look forward to hearing your other podcasts as well. You guys have had a, a good uh, spectrum of people coming on. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, have a rest of, have a fun rest of your day and uh, go Chiefs as that game is getting ready to start. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's all right. I don't know. Uh, I live in Cincinnati, so it's a tough one. 